0: Then Moses called all the leaders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the, tor- and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did.
1: I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus." Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, "'What are you seeking?' And they said to him, "'Rabbi,' which means teacher, "'where are you staying?' He said to them, "'Come and you will see.' So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, "'We have found the Messiah,' which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus.' Jesus looked to him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Lord God, uh, as we open your word and as we meditate on what you have to say to us, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears and that you would speak to us clearly in this season of epiphany. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are dependent upon you to make yourself known to us. So we ask that you would come. In power, in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. Dave uh, is away. His wife surprised him with a trip to the hill country, which is a wonderful, beautiful place. And I'm very jealous because I love the hill country. Um, but we are in the season still of Epiphany. And we celebrated the Epiphany last Sunday by looking at the story of the Magi. Uh, but there's a whole season. In a few Sundays, that go along with Epiphany as we move towards Ash Wednesday and then towards Lent. And Epiphany is about revelation, about Christ being revealed for who he is, Christ being revealed to the nations as the savior of the world. Um, We may not think of an Epiphany that way. I wanted an excuse to use my newly acquired American Heritage Dictionary, so I looked up Epiphany in there. Um, And this definition struck me as kind of the way that we think about what an epiphany is, that an epiphany is a comprehension or perception of reality by means of a sudden intuitive realization. Sudden intuitive realization. And that gets at some of it, um, but really epiphany is about its divine origin, that things have to be made known to us. As Christians, as people of God, as people of the book, we believe in revelation, That God makes himself known to us, that we serve a God who speaks. Not just a God who spoke, but a God who speaks now, who speaks through his word, who comes to us with his Holy Spirit. And what we acknowledge as people of epiphany is that we are dependent upon God to make himself known to us. It's not just we can have sudden intuitive realizations, yes, God does that in the context of community, in the hearing of his word. Sometimes when we come to the table, we can have this sudden intuitive realization. But it's important to remember that in those moments, it's God at work. Because his desire is to make himself known. So that we might know him and love him and worship him. And that's why the example of the Magi is the tone setting for Epiphany. Because they see a star and that star reveals something to them and they follow that star. They know that this star is significant. They come into Herod's court and they hear the word of God that gives them even more information about who this person is. And when they come into the presence of Christ, what do they do? They worship and they offer gifts. That's the whole movement of this season of Epiphany is that we would see who Jesus is for who he is and that we would worship him. So Epiphany is about the identity of the son. It begins with the Magi, as I said. And then typically in the season of Epiphany, we also sell, we look to Jesus' baptism, of which John the Baptist spoke today. What happens at Jesus' baptism but a revelation, an identification of who this person is, that the Lord speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit descending upon him and remaining on him identifies him as the son of God. And we have another identification this week, another finger pointing to Jesus, telling us who he is and why he's come. And it's the words and the finger of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying, behold, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So I want to use that statement to talk about who Jesus is as the lamb of God and why we need the Lamb of God. And I love the lectionary sometimes. I didn't pick these readings. The church picked these readings and they go together and then it does all my work for me. Because here's the story from Exodus of the Passover Lamb and here's John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying the Lamb of God and all I have to do is just connect those dots. So that's all we're gonna do today (laughs) is what does the Exodus story tell us about Jesus being the Passover Lamb of God who enacts a new exodus for us, and why that's important. Why that actually constitutes us as a people and identifies us as Passover people or Paschal people. His identity as the Lamb of God is what actually secures our identity as the people of God. And that's one of the great teachings of looking at the Passover story through Christian eyes. That the meaning of the Passover and Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God is what secures our identity as the people of God. So I wanna look to the Exodus story, specifically to the night of Passover, as a fundamental and foundational story to learn what it means that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Does that sound all right? Okay. So the Exodus story is a story about salvation. It's a story about freedom and liberation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, in saying this, is invoking the story of Israel's salvation, their deliverance from Egypt, and saying there's a new Lamb, a new deliverer. The story of the Exodus is a story that situates the sal- our salvation in a larger vision. John specifically says this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we think about that, having our sins forgiven, it's easy for us, especially in certain Christian circles, to reduce our salvation to just that, that the only thing that God is concerned with is getting rid of our sin, and that there's nothing else to our salvation. Forgiveness of sins is one of the great miracles of the cross, but it's not the only miracle of the cross. And the Passover story points to deeper dimensions of our salvation. Because what happens in the Passover story is not just the forgiveness of sins, it's a rescue from death and it's a deliverance out of slavery. And those are two dimensions of our salvation that sometimes we don't focus on as much. It's not just that we're forgiven, though we certainly are, but we're forgiven for this other dimension, this deeper dimension that God has rescued us from death, that he's delivered us from the dominion of darkness, and that he's delivered us from slavery. This story is a story about freedom. And Jews understand it as a story about freedom. This is from a Jewish commentator talking about this passage in Exodus. And he says, what's happening here is not a mere political liberation from bondage, but a liberation for more than a political way of life in relation to the liberator freedom not from, but freedom for. That God delivers us from slavery, sin, and death for the purpose of being liberated to worship him and to know him. Think back to the Exodus story when Moses first comes into the presence of Pharaoh. What does he say? Let my people go so that they might worship me, worship the Lord, that they might go to the mountain of the Lord to worship God. It's not just set them free so that they can be free. It set them free so that they might worship me because that is who they are. That is what they are made for. So it's not mere liberation from bondage, but liberation for, to orient us towards the one who liberates us. So we can't forget that our sins are forgiven. We confess our sins every week because we recognize that in a real relationship, you have to clear the air. You have to be honest about what's going on in your heart. So I'm not trying to dismiss that the forgiveness of sins is not an absolute miracle. But to build on that, to build on the declaration that we are righteous before him, we can have an enriched understanding of a more comprehensive vision of our salvation, that we are set free from slavery, sin, and death so that we might worship God and so that we might actually be an epiphany of his love in the world to go tell that good news to others. So, God enacts in the Exodus a deliverance from death, and he frees his people from the forces that enslave them, which for us, we would summarize as Satan, sin, and death. Satan represented in the Exodus story is Pharaoh, the enslaving power that needs to be overthrown, that needs to be confronted, that needs to be shown to be weak through the plagues. Sin and death, death passing over the people of God. And it's important to remember that this story is the story in the Old Testament. It is the anchoring, foundational, fundamental story of the Old Testament And even in this context, Moses is telling the people of God, this is what you tell your children. This is what gets passed down from generation to generation. You shall observe this rite, the Passover feast, as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. This doesn't go away. It's the thing you go back to again and again and again and over and over because it is the fundamental and foundational story for the people of God. So the children say to their parents, what do we mean by this service? What is going on in the Passover? And there's this opportunity for conversation. Maybe you've had that experience here if you've taken a child to communion. What is this about? And then you have this opportunity to have a conversation. Why bread? Why wine? What is going on? Why do, we, why do we do this every week? So there's a generational dimension to this story that's supposed to be passed down. That Part of how we teach our children is by saying, hey, we have a Passover lamb who has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, set us free from Satan, sin, and death so that we might serve and worship him. So it's generational, and it's also communal. If you go back to the beginning of Exodus chapter 12, which is outside of the scope of our reading, it says that the lamb will be according to their father's houses, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. What's going on there is really interesting, is that the basic unit is the family, not individuals, and then the family is open to others who aren't, large enough as a unit to constitute sacrificing their own lamb. That's a long way of saying that God is thinking communally and that his salvation is communal salvation. It's not less than individual salvation. It's not less than personal salvation, but it is more because part of what it means to be saved is to be constituted as a people. It's not just me and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. And even deeper than that, it's us as his body. We are his body The body of Christ the church so the Passover shows us this generational dimension it shows us this communal dimension but what about the lamb itself the lamb that is sacrificed the truly astonishing thing is first of all that John the Baptist is like hey that's the Passover lamb of God But more astonishing than that is like Jesus says, yeah, I'm the Passover lamb. The truly astonishing thing is that Jesus takes the fundamental foundational story of the Exodus and he recenters it on himself and saying, I'm enacting a new Exodus. I am the new lamb enacting a new Passover. This is a really weird analogy, so please stick with me. But imagine somebody who's very fixated on the founding of the United States and the foundational event. What is the foundational event for us? Well, you could say the Declaration of Independence. Right? That sets this whole thing in motion. We declare independence, then there's a war and all that sort of thing. But imagine someone appearing and saying, I am the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) That would be weird. That's kind of like Jesus saying, guess what? I'm the Passover lamb. And I want the strangeness of this statement to to kind of sit with you because it can become so overly familiar. In fact, we say these words every week. Because the truth is that every week when we come to the table, we are coming to a Passover feast. We say it at the end. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And Jesus, when he gives us this meal, when he entrusts communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, to his people, when is it? Well, it's Passover. And what is he doing? He's taking the Passover feast itself and recentering it on himself. And the words that he gives us are, this is my body given for you, this is my blood shed for you, the body of a lamb sacrificed on your behalf so that death might pass over you, so that you might be delivered from darkness and the dominion of death, and so that you might serve me. The blood of the lamb poured out covering us so that death might pass over us. That's what John is saying when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's our Passover Lamb. He will enact for us what that night in Egypt was enacted for the people of God. And just as that Passover constituted a people for God, this act, the crucifixion where the Lamb is slain for us, constitutes us as a people of God. And He gives us that meal. this meal at the table, as a way to remember. There's a great hymn, Episcopal hymn, that sums it all up this way. At the Lamb's High Feast, we sing praise to our victorious king, where paschal blood is poured, death's dark angel sheathes his sword. Israel's hosts triumphant go through the wave that drowns the foe death's dark angel sheathes his sword where the paschal blood is poured paschal is just another word for passover the blood of the passover lamb means that death passes over us and that we can be delivered out of the dominion of darkness we can cross through the red sea and the red sea itself will crash upon our enemies that's baptism that one's for free you can go think about that one go read romans 6. So these words are astonishing, and I want them to be astonishing to us that this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood shed for you. We can become overly familiar with them. Like, yeah, that's what we say because Jesus told us to say it, but why did he tell us to say it? Well, he wants us to look back. He wants us to situate ourselves in this story as people in need of liberation, as people who are enslaved by sin and Satan and death who need to be set free and who have been set free. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. The church from the very earliest days attaches itself to these words. The earliest strands that we have in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians especially, are these words, that Paul is not making these words up when he says in 1 Corinthians this is my body, this is what Jesus told us to do, he's drawing on an already existing tradition that when God's people get together that are constituted around the Lamb of God Christ, this is what they do. They break bread and they drink wine to remember that he is our Passover Lamb. So this table is foundational and fundamental for us because it's the place where we reenact the story. And it's the place where we remember. Now, that word remember, even in the Exodus story, has much deeper meaning than just drawing something to mind. Because if you go and read Exodus 13, after they've been delivered, it talks about generations being told this story, and they put it in the present tense when they do the Passover feast. They say, we were delivered from Egypt. So say it's, 10 generations from now and they're in Israel and they're doing the Passover feast, they are saying we were the people who were delivered from Egypt. Not our ancestors, but us. That's something more than just drawing something to mind. It's bringing the past to bear on the present. And that's part of what the Eucharist is, this feast, our Passover feast, is that we bring the past to bear on the present. This is why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Not just call to mind that something happened in the past, but draw the past forward into the present as a way to experience this reality, which is what happens to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's one verse that made me Anglican. (laughs) He was made known to him in the breaking of the bread. Did our hearts not burn within us when he was opening his word to us? But they only understand that after they've experienced the feast. Word and sacrament go together. So when we say we remember, we're saying something deeper than we're calling something to mind. We're drawing the past to bear on the present, but we're also drawing the future to bear on the present because we're waiting the full final wedding feast of the lamb there it is again. N.T. Wright uses this example of trains, that if you're at a train station, a train might come from pass you by from where you just were, and a train might come into the station from where you are going, and that that's what's happening at the table, is that the past is coming to bear on us. It's being drawn to mind. We're being drawn into the story of our deliverance, And then the future of our final deliverance, when we will feast with him at the table in the wedding feast of the lamb, converges on this moment. We are Passover people. We're Paschal people. We're people of this feast. And that's what I meant when I said that God's people's identity is secured in his identity, that who he is makes us who we are because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, We are the people who are constituted by his Passover. We go back to that founding. We go back to that fundamental moment because it's so easy to forget. So we gather in his name. That's what Christian worship is. And we hear from his word and we eat at his table. And as we gather in community here and in our homes and in coffee shops or wherever else part of what it means to be his people is to recount to each other what he has done for us not just that our sins are forgiven but that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and the rule and reign of satan sin and death that's the epiphany that's the revelation that's what god has made known to us that he doesn't just intend to save his people israel but through his people israel he intends to save all of us That's the revelation of Epiphany. Another name for St. Bart's could be Church of the Epiphany. That's what we mean when we say, behold and become. That we want God to show us who he is so that we might gaze upon him and be transformed into his image. And once again, the liturgy does all my work for me (laughs) because it's in the collect. It's in the collect today. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory. That's it. That's why we gather in his name, so that through the word and the sacraments, we might be illumined with the the light of Christ, and that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 is that we radiate, we reflect that glory to the world. And that's what the Colet goes on to say. We want to radiate the glory of the Lord. Why? So that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. That we might become the epiphany of God's love to the world. That's what it means to be his people. That we are radiating in his light, and then we are reflecting that light into the world. That we gather to gaze upon that light because God promises to speak to us through his word and he promises to be with us at the table. He's made known to us in the breaking of the bread. But we don't just stay here. We go out radiant with the, with the light of Christ so that he might be known, worshiped, and obeyed to the ends of the world, earth. So if you want to start calling us on the DL, Church of the Epiphany, I would not mind that. I think it's a, you know, we're, we're St. Bart's and that's a really good name and there's good reasons for it. In fact, if you go on to read the rest of John chapter one and the calling of Nathaniel, Nathaniel is Bartholomew and you read Nathaniel's story, that's the story of St. Bart's really, is this one who's willing to say about Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> willing to ask questions. But then when Jesus is made known to him, he's like, oh yeah, you're the son of God. So he's responsive, he's open, he's willing to receive the light of Christ. That's why we're St. Bart's. So we're not changing the name. But Church of the Epiphany would be amazing. I would love that. So where does this leave us? Well, we've heard from the word and now we're gonna feast at the table. And as we come forward today, I just, even as we go through the prayer, I pray that the familiar words would be unfamiliar, that we could hear them anew. And then hearing them anew, the past would come to bear on the present. And our hearts would be filled with hope for the the future that comes to converge on this moment too. That God has saved us, that he is saving us, and he will save us fully and finally when he brings us into his glorious kingdom and we feast with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this season of epiphany. We thank you that you do not keep yourself to yourself, but that you make yourself known to us in creation, through your word, through your saving deeds, and through the blessed sacrament where you are made known to us in the breaking of bread. As we come to this table, Lord, we pray that you would encounter us in a new and fresh way. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be people who keep this radiance to ourselves, but that we could not help but reflect and radiate that light and love to the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is our Paschal Lamb. Amen.